Hello everyone and welcome to Beyond the Canon, the Writer's Room podcast. I'm Samelia Hodge-Valloway. And I'm Sarah Zaymarufu. And in this episode, we are very excited to have the incredible playwright, screenwriter and producer, Trey Anthony. We're so excited to have her on the podcast and you can find out more about Trey on our website, www.beyondthecanon.com. In the meantime, enjoy our conversation with Trey as she joins us, your girls, Sim and Saru, in Beyond the Canon, the writer's room. Hello, everyone, and welcome to BTC, the writer's room. We are so thrilled to have Trey Anthony with us. Yay! There should be clapping like an applause at that point. Do you know what I mean? We're <laughs> we'll get like, better. It's like we'll a get crowd roar. <laughs> yeah, exactly. In our minds, that's what's happening right now. Um, but I just want to just inter- introduce the amazing Trey. If you don't know about her, she is an award-winning writer and producer. She is the first black woman in Canada to have a television series on Primetime Network. Her work includes the plays The Kink in My Hair and How Black Mothers Say I Love You. She is, a, um, she is co-writing a feature film, which is an adaptation of her play entitled How Black Mothers Say I Love You, which is supported by Telefilm Canada and Film Wells. Trey is a former writer for the comedy network Global TV OWN and has recently joined the writing team of the television show Unconventional, created by Emmy-nominated Kit Williamson. She has won four NACCP awards, that's when the applause should happen, and, <laughs> and has delivered a popular um, viral TED Talk, which I have watched. This is absolutely amazing. Watch it. Watch it now. <laughs> well, watch it after this. Uh, she is a contributing <laughs> writer for Huffington Post. Her new book, Black Girl in Love with Herself, published by Penguin Random House and Hay House, is now available. I've got hairs available January 2021. <laughs> it's now available, right? It's available. Yes, yeah. it's available. Yeah. It's on sale. <laughs> that is that an is impressive, so impressive introduction. Thank you so much for being with us. Amazing. Thank you. Thank Amazing you for having much. me. I appreciate yeah. it. You know what, Trey? I absolutely, like like Sim said, I loved your TED Talk. Like, I really absolutely loved it. I felt so inspired. And then when you then mentioned your grandma her being on Trisha, I was like, yes, it's just on Trisha. <laughs> I was like, oh, um, absolutely. And I, I think I just kind of really related to the whole messaging that you had with regards to, you know, answering your call and when your call is going to come. Yes. I mean, how mm-hmm. did you, how did you pick that particular subject? Because, I mean, you're quite boss. You could have talked about just about anything really but why was that the one that you thought you know the world needed to hear well it's funny when we um got the invitation to do the ted talk they give us a subject matter and the subject matter was get out of your box and so as i was thinking about the subject matter get out of your box I just started to relay it to my life of like, when do, when did I feel that I got out of my box and in my career and how did I feel that people boxed me in and how did I avoid being boxed in? And for me, it was because I had a true sense and understanding that I had a calling 
in the world to do what I needed to do, right? And that involves my creativity, that involves my writing, that involves storytelling, that involves centering Black women's voices. And so for me, I think when you walk through the world with a sense of a calling and a purpose, it's very hard for people to put you in a box. They will want to put you in a box, but you are kind of like, nah, like I said in the talk, I'm so much bigger than the box you want to try and put me in. So that's kind of how it all came about for me. That's, look, I live by that. So for me, like, like what Saru said, that resonated hard. I was like, yes. Yes. (laughs) Yes. Like live your purpose, find your calling and just go for it. Um, Mm -hmm. I really want to talk about black girl in love with herself. Yeah. Wow. You know that title alone? You're like, Oh, that's, yes. <laughs> that, that's a that that's that's deep. That's kind of like look, learning to love yourself, and what does that mean as a black woman, right? What does that mean? Mm-hmm. Um, and I I just love the title of the book, and I just really want you to sort of just talk more to that. Like, tell us more about what does that mean for you? You know, in terms of loving yourself as a black woman, and what can we yeah. expect from the book? Oh, for sure. For me, the book was, um, and the title was, I had just ended a relationship. And it was funny, I was in one of those, you know, when you're, you break up with somebody, and you're in the bathroom, and you're crying. And I don't know if anybody else does this, but I like to look at myself in the mirror when I'm crying. I don't know what this is about. but (laughs) It makes me just feel like, oh, my gosh, this is real pain. I can see it, right? And witness it, right? So I was having one of those bathroom moments, looking in the mirror, crying. And then I said, oh, my gosh, you know, this wouldn't have happened if you were in love with yourself. You just, you just allowed certain behaviors. Mm-hmm. You closed your eyes to certain things because you were so desperate to be loved by somebody. And it was just like this little voice in me just said, from, from here on out, you are going to be a black girl in love with herself that you cannot give over the duty of someone loving you to someone else. Right. Mm -hmm. And so I was just like, no, the love has to come from within you. And I think it's that whole thing of you attract where you are. I'm a big believer in that. And I believed at that point I had attracted that relationship in my life and given away so much of my power because I was so desperate in trying to have somebody love me. Right. And I was so invested in the relationship. I was so invested in having hashtag couple goals written underneath my Instagram post that I refused to listen or look at a lot of the real glaring red flags because I so wanted to be in a relationship. And I think for a lot of women, um, Mm. especially when you hit our mid thirties and forties, we have that checklist, right? And the checklist is you meet your person, you then, you know, you get married to your person, then you have, you buy your house and you have kids. And I was just invested in that checklist. And I was just like, I got to take this off, right? I'm, I'm there. And I was, and so for me, it was a real, I think, cruel, but really inspiring moment for me to say, this is what happens when you stop loving yourself. And you've got to learn how to love yourself again. And so that's where the title came from for me. It was that just guttural response to going, what happened? Like, whose life is this? And how did you end up 
here on the bathroom floor, now getting up, looking at yourself crying in the bathroom mirror. What happened here? <laughs> right. Wow. Mm. That's, that's, that's truly amazing. And I think there's mm. also something about just how we're conditioned to serve. You know what I mean? Yeah. That's how we're conditioned to serve others and to, you know, be so considerate of others, right? Mm-hmm. I think especially as a black woman, I think that's why we do make the, the, the best and we, you know, the, the best um, activists and cause we're doers. We're like, no, we want change. Yes. And we have to do it. And like, you know, we're kind of yes. right there in the, in the front, on the front line. So I think there really is something about taking a step back and going, but what do mm. I need? What do I exactly. need? Exactly. And how do I love, how do I, how do I pour love into myself? You know what mm. I mean? You know, <laughs> I love yeah. that. It- it's so true it's very very true it's funny i saw this meme this morning and it said there's going to come a time in your life when you realize you are worthy of the love that you give to others and i was like yes yes. i was like yes (laughs) yes oh my god i find all of us know how to give it to others and yet we don't know how to pour it into ourselves oh my god literally on my wall i've got a vision i've got a vision board right and one of the quotes on there is treat yourself with the same love you show others yes yes girl yes (laughs) exactly yeah it's it's a really tough one because I mean I I completely understand as well because like Sim like I am I've always thought of myself as somebody who's likely to be of service whenever I get into a situation I always assess it with that with that hat on to say okay I'm in this situation how can I be of service and it is and like but I've gotten to that space because yes single woman in her 30s yes And, and I have gotten into that space where so many people around me are expecting me to be ticking up that list, you know, just yes. be going through the checklist, going through it and finding that moment where I'm like, you know what? I'm okay. Like I'm, I'm good right now. I'm loving me so much. And I don't know yes. if I can find somebody who's going to love me as much as I love me right now. You know, and, and having that kind of confidence to say that to your African mother, oh, to, your African God. mother God. to your African mother is like everything. It is something else. It's so funny how our mothers really put this extra pressure. I, I, in the book, it's funny because my mother is Jamaican. And I said in the book, um, after this big breakup and my relationship of five years had come crashing down, my mother looked at me and said, it's just so unfortunate that you have found yourself alone at this time in your life. <laughs> oh <my God. laughs> I am pretty sure your mother is my mother. <laughs> just like, what do you do with that? Like, what can I do with that? But she just had just this look of just pity, like my whole life would come to an end. Like every single accomplishment meant nothing because I now was by myself at this point in my life. <laughs> right? And she goes like, how did this happen? And I was just like, you know what? Just let this one go. I am not going to take this on. Yeah, no words. No words, mom. Yeah. <laughs> but it's, it's so spectacular as well because, I mean, you are incredibly accomplished though, Trey. Like, and it, it is like all of those things just make you even phenomenally more lovable, you know? And, and just yes. like the way that you, your voice and the way that you, you present to the world and the things you put into the world. I mean, good God, Trey. It's fine. I love you. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I need it. Thank you. Thank you so much. 
You're very welcome. Shay, um, one of my favorite questions, because Sim works with provocations. Um, she works with provocations. And one of, when she was putting together her second anthology books, one of her provocations was who writes for whom or who can write for whom. Okay. And I just want to ask you, because this is my favorite question, like, who do you write for? I write primarily, and I say unapologetically, for Black women in that Black women are always centered in my work, are always centered in that space for me. They are the people who are my primary audience. That being said, one of the things that I have found, um, and, you know, I don't like to use that word, but this is the word that they have used of, like, crossover. Your work has crossover appeal, mainstream appeal. It's gone commercial, blah, 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 blah. I think the reason why my work has tended to go mainstream or had crossover appeal, I truly believe when you as a writer center your work in a level um, of authenticity, truth, and vulnerability, people will find themselves in your work regardless of race, gender, class, sexuality. And the biggest example of this I, I give is in my work, The Kink in My Hair, there was a monologue that I did about Nia um, and Nia was a very dark-skinned Black girl. And in the monologue, it deals with shadism. And she talks about, and this was an experience that I had within my own family of being, coming from a family who very much valued the lighter-skinned children in the family, right? And so in the monologue, Nia says to her mother, I just want you to look at me and see me right? And I'm tired of you always looking at Sandy and thinking she's the pretty one and giving her the love that I never got. And she goes, mom, can you just look at me? And so after the play, we were in this 2000 seat theater, commercial run theater. I came out to do a Q and A and this blonde blue eye woman stood up and she put her hand up and she said, oh, I just want to tell you the Nia monologue just spoke to me I just saw myself in that monologue so I looked at her and I was like I think you have maybe the wrong monologue right I said the Nia monologue was about colorism and the dark-skinned sister saying her mother favorite the light-skinned one and she goes yeah mm -hmm, that's the one and she said because I was always the fat sister and my sisters were always skinny and so when she said mom look at me I want you to love me like you're my sister she goes, that was my whole experience of being invisible and thinking my mother didn't love me because I didn't meet her expectations of what she thought her daughter should look like. And that is when it clicked to me that people will find themselves in your work if you write from this place of just truth. And it was just so, to me, that was such a niche monologue that was an experience of either you know, people of color or racialized people. I never thought that would transcend to someone else. And yet she found herself in that monologue. And so that is when it came to me. I was just like, you can center your work and think you are only speaking to one specific audience, but people will find themselves in your work if it's um, centered in truth. That, that is so, I mean, I, we could go, we, I, could, I really am tempted just to push more on that. 
because <laughs> I'm like, okay, but did you get the point as well? But like, I, 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 do think there's, I do think there's something about the, you know, and people always talk about sort of what's universal, what's not universal. Yes. How do, you know, that whole perception of what is then classed as universal? Is it universal because you know, you can see something and then you adapt it for your own, you know, I mean, in terms of your own experience, or do you go there to understand maybe a different experience that might not be so in line with your own personal experience? Like, and I think that, you know, both things are kind of relatively, you know, I mean, you know, it really is down to the person and their capacity, really, do you know what I mean? To kind of really kind of take on, you know, um, you know, the things that we do, we naturally have to because of the limited oh, amount yes. of work and opportunities and the fact that we can't always, you know, we don't always have that level of representation. So we are forced mm-hmm. to, you oh, know, of course. always do that. And, you know, always find ourselves like, in their work. Always yes. trying to find ourselves in the work, like try and find ourselves in, you know, in whether it be Shakespeare that's kind of drilled down our throats when we're in you know education or whatever everyone knows how I feel about the whole Shakespeare thing um but I think I think it's really I think that's really interesting and it really it, you know I think that just for me it opens up a can of worms of what that moment really was and like how mm-hmm. to really kind of look at that moment but mm-hmm. ultimately I think you're right I think it's human nature for you to put yourself in into any scenario right do you know what I mean and trying mm-hmm. to have something that's really personal that resonates with you with yourself mm-hmm. um I really want to talk about because you know before we even started recording we we're talking about okay can we claim you or can oh, you ah, she's already claimed oh, she's claimed so yeah, she's already claimed and then you said Jamaica and then I was like oh <laughs> you as well as a Jamaican do you know what I mean yes <laughs> So we're just talking about, so for those who obviously you guys were not record that point, I was asked and I was just kind of just making sure, just confirming with Trey whether she regards herself as a Canadian writer, right? She's currently not in Canada at the moment, uh, but then she enlightened us and she was like, yeah, I'm a Canadian writer, but I was born in the UK. And then- Yes! <laughs> <laughs> and then, then she revealed that she's got a Jamaican grandmother. I'm like, I'm all for this life. Uh, <laughs> so, um, I really do want to talk specifically to Canada though. I spent a little bit mm-hmm. of time going back and forth to Canada and um and mm-hmm. of course we're doing the research for the books, in fact, really. I, it was really important for me to include Canadian writers actually in the second monologue anthology that I put together because I'm gonna just be really honest. I I my 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 knowledge of Canadian writers, especially black writers, was so limited. And yes. I wonder just in terms of your perspective as a black female playwright, you know, what your take is on representation in Canada and like how is, how is that shifting from being local to then being international? And like, did you feel that you had to kind of, you know, go across the waters to kind of get that, that level of, of recognition or just what the state is in Canada currently? In Canada, I think, um, we have a very similar history with our writers um, as UK writers. Um, you know, I have a lot of family and friends who are in the industry in England, and I truly do believe we're, we're, it's, it's the same script, <laughs> for lack of a better pun, that we're all saying, right? Of a lot of times you do not get that big break or you hit a glass ceiling that 
happens a lot in the UK and a lot in Canada that um, people have said to me, for example, if I had started my career in the US and done everything that I had done in Canada, I would be a household name now, kind of like the Tyler Perry's or the, um, the Katori Halls or, you know, that kind of stuff, right? So there's definitely a different level of um, I think just like this quote unquote star system, we don't have that in Canada, right? And um, I think Canada, we suffer from that whole thing of um, we're so close to the US. So they are kind of like, we, instead of kind of looking at our homegrown talent, we rather invest and spend the money on American talent, right? Um, I always remember when I was doing my show in Canada, the TV show, and one of the things, and it was sad to say, but people kept saying to us, oh, I love the show. And we didn't realize it was Canadian because it was just so well done and the production value and oh. things like that, right? Because they didn't think that we could, we could actually produce a quality show. And even when um, I've had my show done in um, The Kink Has Been Done, how Black Mothers um, Say I Love You has been done in Atlanta. It's been done um, in New York. It's been done, um, I'm forgetting some places, San Diego. You know, there's been a lot of American productions. And the pushback that I always get at all times when they do it is, can we change the setting? We don't want it to be in Toronto. Can it be a hair salon in um, New York? Or can Black Mothers be set in Florida, you know, and so um, it's that erasure, um, erasing of our culture, right? And, um, and I think the only thing for me and, and that I'm really always adamant about is that you cannot take the West Indian cultural aspect out of my work. Like that's what it has to be. And it's come to the point where I have to sometimes go in and sit in and auditions with the directors and the producers, because to them, especially in America, it's kind of, well, oh, it doesn't matter. It's black. No, it's, it does matter. It actually mm. does matter that there's, um, there's a nuance yeah. to Caribbean, Canadian, English culture. And I yeah. feel that's where I feel I settle into my work because when I go to England, it feels very Canadian to me, right? Like it's very, it's very similar, right? Like the, the West Indian, the Nigerian, probably all of that feels very like, oh, I'm home. I know this. And I think sometimes as Black Americans, that's the only experience we ever get to see and hear. And I think it's only recently you know, they're starting to talk about the immigrant experience and what that looks like for Black people, yeah. right? Mm. And before, it's always kind of like, you know, the Black American experience is supposed to talk for all Black people. And I'm kind of like, that actually isn't my experience. It really is not my experience. I don't know this. This is actually very foreign to me, right? And so that has been something that I've been really working for and, and I feel especially there's been this resistance in the U.S. sometimes, especially when I first started, of um, I don't know if the American audience is going to get this. It's a little too Caribbean. It's a little too Canadian. And I'm like, they're going to get it. They're going to get it. And they're going to love it because there's actually a world outside of America. I know you guys don't believe this, but there's actually a world outside of America. 
exactly it's, it's so strange but america has that pushback even with like yes. british work they're like whoa whoa yeah. are we gonna get this is this gonna be you know something that's gonna resonate with our audiences yeah. if it's not american and set in yeah. america <laughs> do you know what i mean that's so true and the funny thing is what I find with American audiences, every time I do my work, they always are like, I just love this. This is a whole different experience. Yeah. This yeah. is something different. Because w- one woman came back to me and she said, as important as it is of seeing the stories of, you know, I call them the slave stories of, you know, the, you know, what was me? And she goes, sometimes I get tired of seeing work where Black people ain't winning. She goes, and that was refreshing in your work to just see well-rounded, everyday people. She goes, we actually won in this play. And she goes, sometimes I walk Mm. out of theater and I'm like, whoa, that was really depressing, right? She goes, how many times do we have to see the slave narrative? As important as it is, and we know it, but we know it, we've seen it, and we've been really invested in it. And I, 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 for one, don't need to know any more about it. And I want to see a different type of Black story. And so that was where my work was rooted in. I was like, I have a different experience. Culturally, I have a whole different experience. Being raised by proud Jamaicans, I have a whole different way how I move through the world Mm -hmm. than um, my Black American um, friends. And they tell me that. They're like, oh, she does that because she's Jamaican. She's Jamaican. (laughs) Right? (laughs) 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 and i feel we we have to know that there's other stories to be told there's other black stories other narratives that need to be told and um i feel only now we're starting to be a bit more open to that quite interesting when you say that you know they are saying will our black audience get it or they are saying can we change it and then the audience is saying that was refreshing that was good to see like it's, it's almost like they like why are you the ones who are deciding what this audience should and should not see why are you coddling them to a point where you're telling them that this is the black experience that they need to be living in spaces like theaters and things it's so crazy like i i honestly like obviously i'm I'm an immigrant in the UK. So my, my experience is that it's, it's part of the diaspora. I, I am very African. I've got very African family and, you know, but then I also have this sense where I've been in the UK for the majority of my life as well, you know, and it's like both of those things are part of my makeup. And to strip one of the other or to like make me be part of a narrative that does not necessarily conform to that doesn't make sense to me. And it doesn't make sense to me to strip other black people of their heritages because they're different to us. It's the color, the color that makes us all beautifully, wonderful variations of black (laughs) and very necessary. Do you find that, because you've written for both TV and theatre, so do you find that it's the same kind of argument or the same fight with regards to representation in TV? Definitely, definitely. Um, I think, especially in TV, um, we, you know, we are adapting a TV show based on how Black Mothers Say I Love You, the play, and we shopped it around to so many networks 
And it's an amazing script. Like it's, you know, and I'm not just saying that because it's my script, but it's <laughs> such a and, and fire salutary. <laughs> the feedback we got from every single American network was we just think we're not sure if our black American audience is gonna get this or our other audience is going to get it. It just seems so culturally specific. And so I was kind of like, okay, you know. And we are, you know, we play with things, like you play with things to the point of, if you want to get your script sold, these are certain things that you want to do. But then there's also a part as you as a creator, who's kind of like, I actually can't do that. (laughs) There are certain things that are just so authentic to the story. I cannot switch that out or play that in or whatever. And so that's what we're grappling with right now as we're doing rewrites of like, how Americanized can we get it to sell it? But how can we also then not sell out our souls for the sake of making it Americanized, right? Mm. So it's a very, it's a very precarious place to be as Black creators and especially as creators who are not Black American. And so I think only now people are starting to open up and be much more open to the different possibilities and different worlds. But um, I find a lot of the times, like even when you look on TV, if it's not a a story of, you know, someone, you know, growing up in the ghetto and and being shot and selling drugs or, you know, it's just kind of, I was just like, I just want a story like of like a black family doing shit, right? And having black (laughs) dysfunction, but nobody's selling drugs. Nobody gets killed. You know what I mean? And that, and that's the kind of, like I said, my family's as dysfunctional as any other white family that Mm -hmm. you see, right? You know, like, why can't we have a six feet under, you know, like, like those are the kind of things, but um, they're they're very invested in telling those stories. Mm-hmm. And so, and, and we have to really start to shift the narrative. And if those stories aren't being told, then the stories then that get told, if we are seeing black families who aren't getting shot and killed and blah, blah, and selling drugs, then they're comfortable with those stories being told in the comedic space. But it's very few in drama space where we just get just regular black people just trying to get by. Right. Yeah. And if you think about it, like how many black dramas do we have of just regular black people just trying to make it, which are not set in the half hour comedy space. Yeah. Mm. Right. That's and that so is what we're trying to true. always go against. Of yeah. This is what we want to do. And they just always want to put you back in either a comedy space or give me somebody selling some drugs. Give me somebody getting shot. Yeah. And I'm like, I don't want to do that. That's not my reality. Well, amen to you because that that that's so much. It's, it's just so needed. Do you know what I mean? And it's um, it's just taken a lot of energy, and I'm sure like a lot of people getting knocked back, but getting back up again, and then knocking back on those doors and being like, or just setting up setting up themselves. Um, mm-hmm. but definitely, we need these networks to to change and to sort of shift gears because this is you're right. It's the same formula. It's what it is. It's a formula that they go, but it sells. It and sells. <laughs> gets rolled out time and time again i'm really interested in you trey like just in terms of and i guess it's about like your work and you know what it was it reminded me um when you were talking about i think you were saying in terms of the ted talk about it being about 
um, living outside the box or you know mm-hmm. pushing sort of through that and and being able to kind of live your life with purpose with your calling which actually means that you're sort of stepping outside of your comfort zone right you're kind of mm-hmm. stretching yourself and assessing where you are and then moving forward and I just sort of wonder that how does that how does that sort of philosophy play out in terms of your plays, your play library and what you are setting up for yourself to write next? And how does mm-hmm. that, um, is that, is that something of which you're sort of building on or is like, how do you, how do you like to work? Is it something that you've already in your mind got, you know, I know that writers are constantly working on ideas and plays, mm-hmm. but how are you sort of taking that same analogy of kind of, stepping outside of the box um and how are you sort of implementing that within the mm-hmm. work right for me i'm one of those people who writes what matters to me and what's important and if i read a headline or i think of a story and i wake up with it and i wake up with it a couple of days out of the week then um i feel compelled to write it um, and at the risk of sounding woo, <laughs> right? <laughs> I, I, I do feel a lot of times every single work that I've been done that there has been something or a spirit or an energy has said to me, this is what we're writing. And I'm just a vessel for that to be able mm-hmm. to do that work, right? And so a lot of times when I get in that zone, it's like the play basically writes itself, right? Like I'm just kind of like, oh, okay. Oh, this is what you want me to say? Okay. And, and it just kind of keeps coming. And so um, that's how I tend to write. I also write stories where if we're working out something within my family, that's taking up a lot of time and something sticks with me. Like for example, How Black Mothers Say I Love You. I wrote that play when my grandmother was terminally ill with cancer and I was her primary caregiver. And I asked her a simple question. I said, you know, grandma, because I was reading this book called The Five Regrets of the Dying. And I said, grandma, do you have any regrets in your life? And I thought my grandmother would have said, oh, I regret, you know, not going to school or not traveling. And she said, I regret leaving my children behind in Jamaica and coming to England because it's something your mother has never forgiven me for and my children have never Mm -hmm. forgiven me. And it just hit me like right there, like this was a part of her and a history that I didn't know. And as I started to think about that and ask, and there were, and so many of us, like I, I, I'm sure if I asked either one of you, you have someone in your family who has left their children at some point to go on to quote unquote, build a better life in a first world country. And it was so prevalent in our culture, yet nobody was talking about it. And so I just started I just felt a need to talk about that history that so often gets left out of the history books of these women who came over as domestic workers to the UK, to Canada, to America, to look after white America. And nobody talks about their contribution and what that does to a family because everybody talks about the happy immigrant story, but nobody talks about the emotional ramifications of what happens when the matriarch of the family leaves and what happens in between. And for me, I was like, this is the only story I want to write. And, and it just started to flow from that because I felt my grandmother and women like her 
deserve their stories to be centered stage, you know, just as much as anybody else, you know, and we so often get left out of history and yet we're creating it every day and we're living in it every single day. And it's like, yeah, I I was just like, they, those women deserve to be seen and heard. And as I started interviewing so many other women who were in the same age as my grandmother, some of them just cried literally as I was doing research because nobody had asked them. Nobody thought that their stories were valid. And to me, that's when I say I feel I have a calling and purpose. I want to give women like that, just like give them some recognition. Like they basically carried the world on their backs and no one wants to say, hey, you, I see you. You deserve something for that. You know, and that's where I feel invested is giving those women, women like my mother, women like my grandmother, working class black women, a story and a voice because we're so much more than, you know, Tyrone selling drugs on the corner. I don't know that story. That ain't my story. <laughs> right? That's so wild. That's right. That's right. And, and, I, and I love that. I think especially given the backdrop of what was happening last year, the year before last year with the mm-hmm. Windrush generation. With Windrush, yes. You yes. know. And it's, it's really interesting just in, in terms of, you know, I was actually going back and interviewing a lot of um, the older generation within my family mm-hmm. and, um, and knowing that, you know, a lot of them, majority of them, you know, a good majority of them were you know really had jobs before they left right they kind of yeah. had they didn't you know this story this this whole idea of them just coming to yeah. <laughs> you know <laughs> another country with just what the clothes on their back and maybe one case like and then that's mm. it and then they're just you know no they came here because they were called for they came here yes they were seen as like when we're looking at sort of these essential workers they were the essential workers you know they what I mean? they're the we built you know a lot of you know the places that we see the buildings that we see the, the 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 transportation systems all of those sorts of things like i mean who do you think was operating them like the hospitals yes. you know mm-hmm. um, taking care of and you're so right in terms of like what were the sacrifices the sacrifices mm-hmm. were the children that they couldn't bring with them. The sacrifice, exactly. you know, was that really just in terms of that generational trauma and how that generational trauma yes. really impacts on generations, you know what I mean? And so that those choices, you know, that they, you're, you're so right. And the, the fact that they, they had intentions of going back, you know what I mean? Yes. Like, there's so much in that so so it's fantastic and just really quickly just really quickly before Suri jumps in with a question I was going to jump into the comments (laughs) no actually because I, I i absolutely try like i i love that you told that story because you know i come from like my mom it's a running joke in my family because my mom left me in order to come here you know oh. and, and and she she always like my mom's a crier so she would always talk about how she went for days and days and days at a time because she missed me so much and my whole family everybody knows this because my mom, yeah. <laughs> everybody knows this. And it's so incredible that, you know, even within our community, even within our family, you know, that loss and that sacrifice is not something we take seriously or yeah. even talk with regards to the mental health implications of having yes. to essentially leave an actual child behind, you know. Yes. And I think that is just, it's so spectacular. It's like so many things that exist and are so commonplace 
within our communities and yet somehow we just don't ever put voice to them and would never see them on tv or you know yes. in a play or anything so yes. no that that's just really spectacular so yeah thank you okay so <laughs> So just a really good question, just because I really want to understand how it came to be of the adaptation from stage to screen. You know, I mean, like what was the, how did mm. that come to be? What was the, what was the thinking? Was that always the intention? Um, um, oh, oh, and if not, when did it become the intention? <laughs> when did it become like, mm-hmm. no, actually this should be on the screen. And is it something that you're looking to do as a sort of an episodic way or is it a film that you're trying to create? I think it's a is that for um, Black Mothers or The Kink? The, the Kink in My um, Hair, the TV show? Um, Which one? Mothers, I was, I was referring to. Oh. You, know, you can talk to both. I mean, come on. You've got that you're Black Mothers, I think for myself, I always knew that I wanted to do a TV series on it. Like I knew the play just kind of scratched the surface. And, you know, there's only so much story you can tell in two hours. And I mm. always knew there was a life outside for this family. And so when we did the play, um, Clement Virgo, um, he's done The Wire. He's done The Book of Negroes. Um, he came to see the play. And um, he then said, you know, I see this as a feature. And from the feature then we started talking about maybe doing a um, TV series. And so he saw the vision right away. And then of course too, his family, he came from a family where his mother left him in Jamaica and came to Canada. So he really resonated with the piece as well, right? So it is something I feel for me. um, And in that, because it's such a niche story and it's about these women who have come and who have left their children behind, we have had such a hard time selling the show because people just don't, they, they can't see beyond that, right? Of, of thinking of how important this story is to, to, to um, be told. And um, I haven't watched it yet, but I've heard um, Small Acts talks a lot about that. And I, I think now with the, um, success of that maybe more people now are going to be more open to telling those kind of stories and so I'm really happy mm-hmm. you know that that door is now being opened you know so but I think with my work I like to always think about what other medium it can be served in and um, with the feature film we went even deeper and we went and told the story more from the daughter's perspective of her coming out as a queer woman in Jamaica. And, and whereas with the TV show, it's more focused on the mother leaving her children behind in Jamaica. So it was always very clear to me, like I wanted to show the story through the mother's eyes, Daphne. And I also wanted to show the story through the daughter's eyes, Claudette. So each one serves a different purpose. The feature feels very different from the TV series. Okay. Thank you. And how long has the process been so far? Oh my God, we've been working on this for about, I would say three, yeah, three years, three years we've been trying to sell this. So, you know, I I forgot what show it was where somebody said that it took them, I think 15 years, it just won a whole bunch of awards. I can't remember what it was. 
there was a show that's done really well recently. I can't remember. Oh God, it's going to come to me. And I was like, dear God, please don't let that be me. You're like, no, come on. It's got to be the year. This is the year. I heard that as well. I heard that as well about the show that took 15 years. Oh my God. I can't remember what show it was, but it's one of those popular shows now that everybody's talking about. And they said it took him 15 years to sell it. I can't remember the name of it, but I was like, oh dear God. Yeah. <laughs> That's a long time. It's yeah, a long no. Time. <laughs> it's crazy. Oh, no. no. Like, no I don't want to do that. <laughs> oh, wow. Um, okay. So, Trey, uh, with regards to like, your hope like what do you hope for your work that you put out in the world i mean i mean apart from the obvious which is obviously to get it made to get it seen i mean what kind of impacts do you want it to have i feel for me i've always want to put work out in the world that centers black women that makes us feel proud makes us feel seen and heard like even the book black girl in love with herself um one of the biggest feedbacks when I read some of the reviews on Amazon is people are like, I actually feel seen. Um, This is a self-help book that I didn't know that I needed as a black woman because we're so often left out of those spaces. And this is so specific. Someone said, this is food for the soul. Uh, Someone said, I can't put this down because this is a, a book about a black girl like me. And so for me, it's always about, for me getting that nod you know that nod when you walk down the street and you see a black girl and we kind of yeah, do that okay. right <laughs> right and we know exactly what that yeah. means we don't have to have any kind of words for no, me my whole career is built on that nod i want black women to know i see you right and we have that nod and it's an unspoken kind of dialogue and a history and a love and it's a comfort that when we walk into a room and there's two of us in a sea of whiteness, we know we see each other, that's right? Mm-hmm. And that's to me is how I want to function with my work. That you walk in that room and you're like, oh, that's the black girl. That's the black girl who's got <laughs> me, right? And I think yeah. too often the dialogue is spread about black women not having each other. And that has not been my experience. No. Uh, it has not been my experience of black women trying to hold me down. It's been quite the opposite. Mm-hmm you know mm-hmm. and for me that's the energy i give out and maybe that's why that's the energy i get but black women have been my biggest advocates my biggest supporters the the, pers- the people who i go to get comfort and cry and support they're the ones who buy the tickets they're the ones who are buying my books they're the ones who are spreading the word they're the ones who are funding my films so that has not been my experience and i always get the black girl nod <laughs> so to me that's what it is <laughs> i work for that black girl nod and black women always say we know trey is going to represent us in a way that feels authentic to us. And so Mm -hmm. that's what I work on that. You know, when you go to a Trey Anthony show, you're going to be like, yeah, that girl knows us. She knows us. I love that. Look, we need to keep it moving. Like, we've got so many other questions. Yeah. For you. Like, please come back. Please come back and do this again. Yes, more, more and more and <laughs> more. Um, but before Thank we you. do this, there's a segment that we love, love, love to do with um, everyone that comes onto the show. And actually, this is a way of kind of giving homage to other people, right? It's a way mm-hmm. for us kind of really celebrate you know other people who we consider to be in the beyond the canon library. Um, and so, Sarah, I'm going to just hand it over to you just to sort of just to introduce us. I'm yes! so My second no, one it's okay. Funny, so I'm going to just <laughs> jump up and just try and sort it out. 
No, no, you do you. Uh, but yeah, no, absolutely. It's it's kind of um, initially that's this is one thing that we're never going to really get rid of because we wanted to ask every single writer who comes onto the show if they could just tell us of the work that inspired them and that they wish they had read because maybe you came across it later in life, but you wish you had read prior to you being Trey Anthony <laughs> or at least Trey <laughs> Anthony, the writer, <laughs> just kind of like that. So um, if you could speak to your three plays, that would be fantastic. Yeah. Um, I really loved, um, of course, Colored Girls. Um, I, I, I love that just because for me, it didn't follow the traditional structure of a play. And mm. for me, I don't feel I, especially in the kink, followed the traditional structure of a play. And um, I loved that it was kind of like this poetry, poetic love song. So for me, that was really important. Um, the other work that I really love is Adventures of a Black Girl in Search of God from Janet mm -hmm. Sears. Yes. And for me, the funny thing about that was it was the first time that I had ever seen a Black play have so much production value and money placed into it. And so when I went and I saw, like, she had, like, about, like, 35 Black people on stage, I was like, what? <laughs> right? And it was in this amazing theater and the costumes and the singing. And I was like, damn, look at us. And for me, <laughs> it just opened up the realm of possibility of what your work could look like when someone's funding it, right? Mm. and how you don't have to limit yourself because a lot of times because I produce my own work and um, a lot of the times before it gets picked up I'm always like doing the numbers and the math about like oh well can we have three actors maybe th three <laughs> can play the other part and double up and blah blah and that was the first time I was like this is what it looks like when you actually dream beyond your circumstances and that really opened up that world for me um so that was something that I really loved. Um, the Color Purple, and I write about this, um, um, the play, um, commercially done. For me, I write about this in my book, The Color Purple always has a different spot in my heart um, because it was the first book I ever read what had a female protagonist, black female protagonist in it. When I was leaving England, um, my father and mother separated and my father still stayed in England and my grand and my mother moved to England and to Canada and my dad gave me the color purple I was age 11 at, oh. in the airport to read on the plane and I had an eight-hour flight and I just gobbled up that book like I was just like oh my god so to actually see it um I saw it at Mervish, which also was the commercial theater who did the kink when we went commercial. So again, it just kind of, it just felt very full circle for me of seeing that work on stage and seeing again what it can look like when you're, I, I'm a big thing around funding and dreaming, yes. and, you know, um, and I think a lot of times as Black women, as Black writers, as Black producers, we do things, I know for me, I've done my work under really less than ideal circumstances mm -hmm. to get it out there, right? And I think a lot of us come from that. 
And so for me, when I see work like that, it makes me believe it's possible for us as Black women to have that support of having our work funded in the, like, imagine if we were all given the same amount of money to sit down and write, just to, just to think, like, just to think and just yeah. to write, right? Like what that would look like for us. But so many of us are doing it in between, you know, doing our full-time job, going home to pick up our kids, you know, stress and paying bills, right? We don't sometimes have that luxury of just being able to create. And so for me, seeing work like that done on a bigger stage with money and budgets, it really confirms to me that my work is worthy of that and I am worthy of that. So I like to go to, um, you know, of course, now we can't go to theater, but I especially go to commercial theater and plays done by Black women because I want to know it's possible for me to have that kind of level of funding behind my work. Oh, my God. Mm. Definitely. Definitely. It's so, it's so important. It's so important to know that that's a possibility and to see it and to yes. see it. The, um yeah, it's fantastic. It's fantastic. I'm just thinking of sort of Dominique. I'm thinking of, you know, just yeah. as you're talking, yes. I'm just thinking of Nambi as well. You know, shout out to, 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 to them and to all the others as well, right? That are really mm-hmm. kind of pushing, pushing forward and, mm-hmm. uh, and also holding that space for others as well. You yes. Know, mm-hmm. They really are holding that space. So that's fantastic. So we're going to do a quick lightning round of you. <laughs> oh, God. I didn't <laughs> know about really this one. Quick. This one's no, really new. This is a new. This is a okay, new. Okay. Okay. I'm like, oh god. Okay. <laughs> no, it's easy. It's easy. It's, it's easy. easy. The okay. rules are simple. Okay. All you okay. need to do is we're going to ask you questions, and you have to answer them either as one word or one sentence. So okay. just one sentence, right? At the very, very most. Okay. Okay. And if it's like you have, we're going to give you what? Ten seconds to answer. Oh my god. That's love. Ten seconds is loads. Well, just answer as quick as you can, basically, right? (laughs) Um, So, are you ready, Trey? You ready? I'm ready. I think so. (laughs) I think so. Fantastic. All right. Okay, Trey. What is one thing which you love that would you would that you would give up in order to be an even better writer? Coffee. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> okay theater if you could tell your younger self something what would it be you're worthy oh. would you consider an unproduced play as incomplete no what is the best money you have ever spent as a writer? Taking my family on vacation um, with my kink money. <laughs> I love that. Where did you go? Real quick, where did you go? <laughs> we went to Jamaica and then we also, yeah, did Trinidad. So that was great. Ooh, yeah. Both my both I'm feeling really loved now. My, my dad's been <laughs> jamaica anyway just yeah. no uh, look at that like trey she's giving you the black girl nod she feels seen look at she <laughs> yeah yeah trey yeah yeah i'll see you uh, 
Okay. Do you read your reviews? And if yes, why? If no, why? Why not? Yes. Um, and no. And, and, and I know that's a complicated question. Um, <laughs> I used to, and I, I write about this in um, Funny Black Girl in Love. And, and this is not going to be a, does this have to be a short sentence? Okay, go, no, sure. go. Come on, just go. Yeah, we we want to hear, we want to hear. Okay. <laughs> I have a tendency, when the kink was happening, we had so much great reviews. Everybody loved the play. And then there was this one reviewer who was just disgusting. Like it was just so based in Ignorance, um, ignorance and racism. And it said, the kink is the ghetto Lion King. That was the exact um, <gasps> oh my God, headline. I feel triggered. <laughs> <laughs> From one of our national reviewers in Canada, that's what they decided to say. And um, I write about it in the book, how I zeroed in on this one review, even though we were the talk of the town, we were sold out seats, people were lining up, people were scalping the tickets, but this one reviewer basically nearly put me to bed, right? Like I felt so hurt and angered and embarrassed. And one of my um, fellow actors, Debbie Young, who actually is an amazing playwright, you guys need to get her on here, Blood Clot, she does um, the play Blood Clot, um, came up to me and she tore the page of the newspaper out and she burnt it. And she said, we don't do our work for them. We do our work for black women. And the reason why he's upset <laughs> is because they're so used to being about them. Yes. And because mm. they're not centered in this story, they don't know what to do with this work. And so she said, bond them. And from that day on, <laughs> I don't read bad reviews. I say bond them. That is my go-to. <laughs> Everyone who knows me knows I always say bond them. Because wow. I love them. <laughs> if you take away from, from this conversation, it's bond them, yeah? Bond them! <laughs> and that's how I handle reviewers. From now on, I just say bond them. I, I don't bond care. But yeah, there yeah. Go. There you go. You say bond them and you look for the black girl nod. That, that's exactly. That's, <laughs> <And> that's it. <laughs> Love it. Okay, back on. What okay, are the sorry. three essential ingredients when writing a comedy? Will be a drama, maybe. Well, comedy or drama? No, she does sorry. comedy. Let's do, do both. Comedy let's and do drama. comedy. You do. You do do comedy. So let's do comedy, do comedy and drama. Yes. Comedy is. Oh my god! Three essential. I would say family, family drama, uh-huh. family di- dynamics. Um, always makes good comedy I would say being able to laugh at yourself is another one and not making people search for the punchline give it to them straight Mm -hmm. and drama Mm -hmm. go (laughs) drama having a dysfunctional family having a dysfunctional family who knows you're going to write about them (laughs) (laughs) And having a dysfunctional family who will love you even when you write about them. <laughs> yes. <laughs> okay, this is the last one. This is the last one. So name two of the greatest black female playwrights of all time, according to Trey Anthony. <laughs> oh, my God. Oh, wow. That's a hard one. Mm-hmm. Oh, my God. Who can I say? Five seconds, Trey. <laughs> ding, ding, oh my god ding, ding. oh my god i would say debbie young i definitely i think she's amazing i think she's 
underrated and she definitely deserves her dues. Oh my God. Oh God. And Lorraine Hansberry. That, that's Ooh. my woman. Okay. That's my woman. Yeah. <laughs> you did it. You did it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks so much, Trey. It's been an absolute pleasure having you Thank on. Thank you. The writer's room. Thank you so you. much. And when Thank the world you. opens up, we hope we can meet in person, right? I don't know. Oh, yes, girl. Yes. I'm dying. <laughs> I am dying. We'll meet you in Jamaica. How about that? I, I don't mind. And I love LA, so I have to come to LA. And right. I love England. So those are my two favorite places. So I will come. Yes. yes. Okay. <laughs> Fantastic. Oh, look. Thank oh. you so, so much. Thank and, you. Uh, we'll, Thank yeah, you, guys. We'll when it all airs and stuff. Then, okay, look, please do. I look forward to it. Thank you, guys, so much. Have all a great right. one. All right. Bye, guys. Bye. Bye. You've been listening to season two of Beyond the Canon, the Writers' Room podcast with your girls, Sim and Saru. If you want to find out more about Beyond the Canon, please visit www.beyondthecanon.com. And you can follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at Beyond the Canon. And please subscribe to us on Spotify, Apple, or wherever you get your podcasts.